Out to Explore. I'm your host, Paul Torda. The National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, has been operated in Alaska since 1971. Today's Outdoor Explore highlights the many influences Knowles has had on Alaska and the outdoor industry, including risk management, land management, and leave no trace. Stay tuned for Outdoor Explore. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordock, and with me is John Gans, the former president of Knowles, former Knowles Alaska director, and also a longtime Alaska resident. Uh, Ashley Wise is also joining us from Palmer, Alaska. Ashley is the current program manager of Knowles Alaska. Uh, Knowles, also uh, formerly known as the National Outdoor Leadership School, has been in Alaska uh, for around 50 years. And a little side note, John was my first Knowles instructor in 1983 in Wyoming when we, back when we skied in single leather boots and skinny asnes skis, mountaineering, learning how to telemark ski. So welcome to the show, John and Ashley. Great, Paul. Good to hear from you again. Hi, Ashley. Hi, John. Hi, Paul. Great to be here. Yeah. So, John, tell us, uh, we'll start with you. Uh, tell us uh, first uh, how you discover Knowles and what, uh, why and how it became such a big part of your life. Yes, well, when I was in college, I had composed my uh, academic work in physics and math. And in my last year, I was um, on a scholarship through the Hearst Foundation and I wanted to see the world. I'd never um, had a chance to travel extensively, grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota. And so I looked for programs in Africa because I'd always wanted to go to Africa. And I found this one with Knowles. I knew nothing about Knowles, but ended up on a Knowles semester in Kenya. And that semester changed my life in many ways. It changed my outlook on wilderness. It changed my outlook on education. And I came out of there and decided maybe working in physics and math wasn't my thing. And I was fascinated in alternatives to education. And so stepped out of there to start a school and eventually to come to Knowles. And, and what year was that, John? That was uh, my semester in Africa was in 1979. And I then came back uh, and did a Knowles instructors course in the summer of 80. And then I started working my first Knowles course in the summer of 81 and was up in Alaska working for the school a year later in 1982 on both the uh, Glacier, a mountaineering course, and then also in the Talkeetna Mountains. Great, thanks. Uh, tell us, um, John, why don't you talk about the history? Now, I always heard this um, sort of story that Paul Petzl, who started Knowles, uh, somehow came to Alaska and was out in Prince William Sound and stood down on a, by Colorado Island, the south end of Colorado, and said, Knowles is coming to Alaska. So I guess that's probably rumor. So you want to elaborate a little bit on how Knowles ended up here and uh, yeah, and what that story, there's anything to, to, any truth to that story? Well, I wasn't there at that time, but I can say that Paul was a larger-than-life character. Um, I got to know him well in his later years, and um, he would go in 
to spots that the school was expanding into, but typically he followed other people's scouting trips and work. And, you know, the key people there to scout out Knowles, Alaska, went up after working for Knowles in Wyoming in the summer of um, 1970. And they went up in a, a green pickup truck, Robin Martha Hellier and Jim Hellier, and they started poking around along with um, Steve Geip, Tom Warren, um, there may have been a few others, and they explored the Talkeetna Mountains, they explored down in the Kenai, and then in late October, remember this was after summer, late October, they decided to put this full boat together, a folding kayak, much poorer shape than the Kleppers or other modern versions of folding kayaks. And they took off and paddled from Whittier to Valdez. And as the story on them, they basically didn't have a map, but they had a napkin that they um, had um, charted out what to do on a, in a bar in Whittier the night before they left. You can imagine what sort of route planning that was. And they made it across with some big storms. As we know, those big storms can come into um, the sound in late season. And they decided this is an adventure. Knowles belongs here. And, you know, later after that fact, I think Paul came up and visited, whether it was the next summer or the summer after, and sort of gave his blessings to the place. But in 1971, the school then started running courses and they had a permit on Denali in 71 and ran a Denali climb. And they also went back out on Prince William Sound. And that was the start of the school. And when they climbed Denali, what was the route that they were on? Was that the Muldrow route? Yeah, right from the start, the school was on the Muldrow route. Now they did in um, the late 70s and also in the 80s a couple of times um, do the West Buttress route. But in that question and answer uh, captures a lot about the school. And the school didn't look for the way that everyone else did things. They looked for the more exploratory, the more remote, the more wilderness route. And the Muldrow takes a big commitment of time and energy. You can't fly in. You climb it from the base down on Wonder Lake. And that was a perfect spot for Knowles. And certainly a lot of work and a major, major expedition. But that was um, Knowles in a nutshell. Yeah, so no flying in, uh, right? Uh, pretty much all human powered um, once they got to the park. That's, that's yes, and it took a few years to figure out getting in um, re rations in the winter and caching them by dog sled. And before that was done, they actually had some airdrops of food. And airdrops were always a bit of a disaster because a lot of the food would explode no matter how they packaged it. <laughs> And there was one time, in fact, I think it was maybe it was 71 or one of those early years where one of the bags, um, which had some matches in it, uh, basically had the matches collide with each other and it lit up and lit the uh, whole re-ration on fire. So they started out behind on food and um, burned food without nothing even being in a pot, so to speak. But they were scraping up food on the Muldero to um, pull together enough for the expedition. That's crazy. I can sort of see you sitting there, oh, here comes our food, and it just sort of blows up. 
Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, oh, what a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so, and in the sound, uh, you said, mentioned kleppers. Um, I've also heard rumors of canoes. Um, what kind of courses? And these are 30-day courses, right? Yes. At the start, there were all 30-day expeditions or 32 days. And they started with um, a full boat, which was kind of like your klepper, only cheaper. And these boats migrated. They went to Knowles, Mexico in the winter. They stopped at Lake Powell in the fall and spring, and then they were driven up to Alaska. So it, it kind of helped the school, which was always operating on a shoestring financially. And, um, and that just made it possible. But then there was an era with the Louisiana connection of Knowles and a number of instructors from there who were big on canoeing. And they thought bringing open canoes in Prince William Sound would the way to be the way to go because they'd done that down in Louisiana. So um, they were a step up in terms of um, oh, maintenance and also being able to tolerate rocks better than the full boats. But um, they were not the craft for Prince William Sound, even though they were used <laughs> for probably about three or four years. And you really had to read the weather well and make sure you weren't on in anything big. And then out of there, moved back into folding fiberglass kayaks. Of course, the technology was changing as Knowles changed. And so a lot of the modern sea kayaks didn't really show up until the 1980s. And Knowles moved into those, and um, that pretty much became the standard then. Let's talk about the 70s a little bit more. But first, I want to remind listeners, this is Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordat. We're talking about Knowles, otherwise known as the National Outdoor Leadership Schools, and their 50th anniversary of operating in Alaska. So let's talk about the 70s a little bit, John. Uh, we started in 71 with a Denali climb and a Prince William Sound trip. Uh, what other significant things occurred during the 70s? I, I assume you had an operational base somewhere, Anchorage or something like that. And, and the 70s were quite the... Uh, time of um, a change in Alaska. So I'm sure Knowles was changing also. Yeah. Um, I should again repeat that I never got to Alaska until 1982 when I came to the school overall in 79. So most of this is secondhand, but I know a lot of the players and knew a lot of the players in those early days of Knowles, Alaska. One thing about the school in the 70s was it was very entrepreneurial. Staff would go somewhere, they would find it to be an exciting place, and they would call down to Lander or send a letter or something and say, hey, we can run courses here. And the school had dramatic growth. The school started in Wyoming, but it had dramatic growth in the early 70s. And then showed up in the Northwest, in Africa, in Alaska, down in Mexico. And it was just dramatic growth. And the systems weren't all in place to really manage that growth well. But the school had some considerable success and got featured on a primetime TV show back when primetime meant something. In the early 70s, there were only three channels we sat around and watched. And all these people watched this 30-day show about Knowles. And the following summer, everyone tried to come to Knowles. And that was in the era of um, Knowles, Alaska, starting out. So yep. there was student demand. 
And people were also given a lot of latitude to plan courses. The instructors, um, it was very instructor-centric school. And in fact, during that era, the school had a philosophy of the branch directors or school directors would only stay for two years. And many times they were only there one year. And after two years, it was thought, bring someone else in and let them do it and rotate it around. And so in the early days, the school not only changed directors in Alaska every year or two, but they also changed headquarters because they were renting. And we were in a weird assortment of warehouses and Anchorage, and we were even in Whittier for a couple of years and Baggage Towers for a headquarters oh boy. in Alaska. And so it rotated around until the late um, 70s, early 80s, when suddenly rentals got to be really, really tight. And we had been in Palmer, Alaska for a couple of um, summers and then shifted to a place in Wasilla that was kind of a disaster for that summer. It was too small. And that gave the impetus to buy headquarters, which was a big step for the school. And that was bought in, I believe, 1982 and um, or late 81. And that's the same headquarters we have to this day. And so it was um, it was bought and we started out of there at the same time I ended up in Knowles, Alaska. So I was part of that adventure. And it really changed the school in so many ways because it gave a permanent presence to the school and much more of a local identity. Yeah, we'll come back to that Palmer branch and Palmer headquarters in a little bit. Um, I want to—I know to readers, John mentioned a film. If you want to look it up, it's called 30 Days to Survival." Um, it was filmed in Wyoming and follows um, great clips of Paul Paul Petzl on that. Uh, John, uh, are there any significant events in the '70s? Um, I'm thinking uh, of near misses or. Uh, things that might have influenced, um, and even the early 80s, uh, uh, that influenced the curriculum and how the school operated. Yeah, you know, one thing that had big impact on the school right from the start in Alaska was on the very first summer um, on Denali, the very first climb, a researcher, a doctor, um, Dr. Bollard, um, ended up falling in a crevasse outside of camp or just outside the um, air, camp area way up high on the Muldrow and basically fell to his death. And that had pretty significant influence on the school, but really on the whole mountaineering of Alaska during this time period. Now, also, you expanded from, you talked about earlier about going from um, uh, the um, just denial, going, exploring different areas. And um, let's talk about some of those areas. Uh, so I know the Takita Mountains um, are, uh, were an area that Knowles were operated on early. Do you want to talk about that and in other areas in the state? Yes. In, in the um, 70s, um, late 70s, all this, I should say in the early 70s, the school started a lot in Prince William's son on Denali. Interestingly enough, we didn't really run other mountaineering courses at the very start, um, but that changed as we moved into the late 70s and the school started going in on month-long mountaineering courses in the 
Chugach Range and up in the Alaska Range. We also started running hiking courses in the Telkeetna Mountains. And that was, um, those were courses that in many ways were much more similar to many of the courses in Wyoming, month-long backpacking adventures. And the wildlife was spectacular. And the ability to just plan routes and go anywhere was immense. We had float or we had planes, float planes and planes on tundra tires that opened up so much country to us. And we were discovering that area along with some of the pilots that we were using, we're discovering it at the same time. I would talk to Mike Meekin and ask him if he thought he could get a plane into a certain area to drop off some food. And the next thing we'd be doing would be hatching some route and laying out a plan to make it work for a month. And so the Telkeetnas became a really big area. In the 80s, while I was up in Alaska, we also expanded into the um, Brooks Range, did some scouting up there. We also expanded into um, the Wood Tick Chick area, ran fishing course, even expanded down to Southeast Alaska for a while. And of course, this was all happening in the wake of Anilka passing. And suddenly, we had all these designated classrooms through, that were national parks or reserves or various other things, state lands. And it opened up a world for not Knowles, but for the whole recreation space, the whole outdoor space, hunting, guiding, other things. And everyone in Alaska was trying to figure out this new land that was now their public lands. And uh, in many cases, not much was known about it. And so Knowles helped um, to guide some of that development and also guide some of the land use planning for many of those areas. We'll, we'll come back to another fascinating subject we'll come back to. I want to come back to the 80s a little bit in the uh, Palmer branch because you're such a big part of, the, of that. Um, and uh, let's talk about that, the um, connection with Louise Kellogg and um, how that came about, the um, headquarters in, outside of Palmer. Yes, uh, there was, um, uh, first off, this um, immense need because... The school was growing and we were working out of small rental spaces. The Alaskan economy was starting to boom and you could not get a place to rent in the spring for a summer season. So made the big step of um, looking at, at possibly buying quarters. And in that process, um, we met Louise Kellogg who ran and had run a dairy farm up in Alaska in the Matanuska Valley. And these were the dairy farms that really were set up by FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as part of the program to move depression era farmers out of the Midwest and influenced by the depression and everything else. And you know, part of it I think was an era where they didn't know U.S. leadership didn't know what to do with Alaska exactly. And so they just tried to turn it into um, Minnesota North or something else like <laughs> other states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in the process, they tried to make the same industries and other things work in Alaska that worked elsewhere. And they thought, oh, we'll make dairy farmers, give them land. And these people are struggling with the depression. We'll send them north. And... 
the colony farm, the farm that became Knowles, Alaska, was one of these. And Louise farmed it as a single woman for many years. And then she had a um, someone else that ran the farm for her. But farming, dairy farming was a proposition in Alaska. And um, so an opportunity came along. Louise didn't want to sell to a developer, but she liked the idea of selling school to take care of themselves and how to become leaders in the outdoors. And in ways it was wonderful because it, it was an opportunity for Alaska to discover what Alaska should be. Instead of taking the model from the lower 48 and transferring dairy farmers up to Alaska and trying to turn them into dairy farmers, here we became um, an outdoor school based on some of that same property and a contributor to the Alaskan economy and an opportunity for many young people and people of all ages really to come north to Alaska to learn about the incredible classrooms, the wilderness classrooms up there. And so I, I remember uh, stories of um, having to you know, clean out the barn. So it's a dairy, a dairy barn. And, um, uh, you know, the first, first summer um, of being quite the adventure of uh, creating that place cleaned up and ready to go. And going from dairy to, you know, outfitting, yeah. you know, ecotourism, you know, basically tourism in a way, you know. <laughs> Yeah, the, the farm was a bit run down by the time we bought it, so we got it at the right price. But we paid for that in sweat labor. And when we moved in to the barn, the gutters had not been cleaned out, so they were full of manure. There was just, I mean, the barn was a mess. And I'd grown up on a dairy farm, so I knew a bit about all that. We had to clean that out. We tried to turn the old colony house into everything from an office to a kitchen to living quarters and we um, had a lot of work to do quickly to operating for that summer but we were excited to know that any of the work we did was going to be something that we could bear the or reap the benefits of for the next you know 50 years and so that was an exciting it was our our own place and Knowles had a lot of handy people around we um, not just in the mountains but people that could build things figure things out and can work hard and we worked hard to pull that off and um, we had quite the season and I think we didn't do our grand opening until 83 it took some cleaning up to get the season running in 82 and then waited on the uh, grand opening till 83 Let's, um, this is uh, Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordat. We're talking about the uh, National Outdoor Leadership School, or Knowles, and their 50 years of being in Alaska. And I'm with John Gans, John, uh, former um, Alaska director and former uh, president of Knowles. Uh, John, let's talk a bit more about the 80s and um, what uh, any significant events that occurred during the 80s. You talked about expansion into new areas, um, expansion of Southeast, um, what other things occurred during the 80s that you think were um, influential on Knowles? Well, I think uh, a couple of the big things in the 80s were um, the school growing and expanding, and certainly expanding in the state 
but really um, the school overall was also expanding into new areas, getting involved in research, doing other curriculum work, um, tying into other organizations. In Alaska, we were very involved in some of the land use plans because suddenly all these new designated parks and reserves needed to have land use plans. The state was trying to figure out their planning. Native corporations were trying to figure out what they were going to do with all their um, new selected lands. And so we worked with all those groups and trying to figure out um, how what Alaska land management would be like going forward. You know, at the same time, uh, technology was changing, um, equipment was changing. Obviously, sea kayaks went through a major change in coming out of the sort of early folding boat phase to the fiberglass boats, and that um, created opportunities for travel and for where you could go. And um, so the whole world up there was really an exciting place. And I think that's one thing that struck me so much about going to Alaska and struck many people. We'd come from the lower 48 in places where an outdoor career was not very common. When you told someone what you did, they didn't quite get it. They thought you were with some summer camp or something. And suddenly we went to Alaska where there was this thriving outdoor career for many people. And if you told someone what you did, they got it because so many people in Alaska were up there doing that sort of thing. And it was, um, so I'd say we saw the growth of the outdoor professionals in Alaska. We saw the growth of, um, in planning for land management, following up on Anilka. We saw a lot of changes at Knowles going on and Knowles became a year round presence in Alaska. In the seventies, when the school just rented for the summer and spring, staff would leave in the fall and winter. And in the 80s, um, I was first director to spend the whole year in Alaska. I stayed there year round. I escaped to Mexico to go see kayaking for a month. But basically, I stayed there year round and was involved in the community. And that remained the same going forward. Let's talk about some of that community a little bit. You mentioned partners. Um, and I think there are some uh, people that are, uh, um, you mentioned Mike Meekin and others. Um, what are, you know, talk about those relationships and how important those were and how that, that very symbolic relationship that uh, is an important part of the Knowles history. Yes, to make anything like Knowles work, you need um, all the resources you can get. And there Early on, some of the key players were the people who had the local knowledge and the local knowledge in the field. And those were people like um, the Bush pilots, Lowell Thomas Jr., who did a lot of flying for us, and Mike Meekin, who did a lot of flying and the Telekeetnas, and really opened the Telekeetnas up for us in terms of understanding that mountain range. Uh, Mike also flew for us in the Chugach and other areas. So we had the Bush pilots. We also had the Dog sled people who hauled in um, caches in the winter for us and other things. But there were also the land management people who, many of them were young. They were newer to land management, whether they worked for the state or the feds, and they became key partners. And in many cases, 
they knew less about some of the land in a hands-on way than we did, but they knew more about land management and what was coming after the passage of Anilka. So we worked collaboratively to, um, to plan for the future. We got many of the land managers actually out on courses so they could experience what we did, but also experience the resource that they were in charge of managing. All right, th thanks, um, John. We're gonna we're gonna uh, come back to that in a second. We're gonna take a short break. This is um, Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. We'll be right back with about uh, about Knowles and the 50th anniversary. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. All right, welcome back. Uh, this is Paul Tordock with Outdoor Explorer. I have John Gans and Ashley Wise with me talking about Knowles' 50th uh, year in Alaska. John, let's stick with you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about sort of risk management and things that have happened and things, how that's influenced Knowles and how Knowles has influenced the outdoor profession um, because they have been uh, very influential in the industry and how um, things have changed. Uh, can you um, elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> uh, yes, I would say that overall risk management um, was always a real hallmark of the school. And it was for a couple of key reasons. And early on, uh, Knowles had a philosophy of going into deep wilderness, into spots that the general commercial company or school did not go. And so to do that well, it was important that we had solid risk management because we weren't an adventure in a can. And in Alaska, certainly, and really across the nation, there were a lot of, you know, adventure in a can type programs or, um, you know, tours or other things like that. And then there were the explorers and the locals and others who were doing really dramatic things. But there weren't companies, so to speak, that were so much in between. And so Knowles was um, kind of uh, a trendsetter in that area. And because of that, we did a lot of things both in um, drawing up and testing out practices, but also keeping data. And data is a hallmark of the school in risk management. We keep all sorts of injury, evacuation, um, near miss data that helps inform our, our program and also trains our staff. And the school has a long extensive staff training program before people end up leading their own course. And a lot of that is um, based solidly on risk management also. Part of risk management, of course, is dealing with something when it doesn't go right. And part of that is about wilderness medicine. And in the early days of the school, there weren't, um, there wasn't a lot of wilderness medicine going on except for ski resorts or up in high altitude places, people gaining an understanding of high altitude physiology. But the school really developed um, that area. And then in, um, let me see, in the 90s, late 90s, we acquired the Wilderness Medicine Institute, 
out of Colorado and merged that into our, our program offering. And to this day, the Wilderness Medicine or Knowles Wilderness Medicine teams up with all sorts of um, educational institutions and partners and government agencies really around the world to um, teach people uh, wilderness medicine and what to do in a setting when something goes wrong in the backcountry there. And so those things were real hallmarks in school, but they were sort of necessitated by the fact that we wanted to go more remote than the average person did. And we wanted a chance to explore on our roots and do it as a um, institution, a nonprofit organization, not just do it on your own as a couple of individuals. Thanks. I know that one of the, when I talk to people that have done wilderness trips on the, what we call the outside, lower 48, and, and Alaska, and I talk about the difference, they talk about the remoteness of Alaska. How has that influenced Knowles and risk management? Uh, is that, you know, I know you talk about that, and Knowles is great. You, you do a lot, so you have a lot of experience, um, good and, and, and not so great. Um, but when, I guess my question is, has, has Alaska, how's Alaska influenced Knowles um, when it comes to risk management or curriculum in general? Yes, I think um, Alaska had a lot of influence over the school. I, I, um, in the early days. And number one was the um, true level of wilderness. You were so much more remote in many cases, especially if you were dropped off by bush plane. And then in the early days in Knowles, Alaska, the radio technology was uh, not very significant. And so your ability to get word out was um, at best sporadic, depending upon where you were communicating from. So you truly were an isolated expedition in every positive sense and in every sense of that. And that was different than many of the areas of 48 that we were operating in at that time. Now, part of that influence of Alaska wasn't just the pragmatic nature of risk management. It was also uh, the ability for us to, and for instructors to be able to dream and piece together roots and do other planning, which was so exciting and such a such a dream spot for staff. Yeah, I know one of those things, John. I, I got to I was very fortunate to be able to do some scouting for Knowles in Alaska. And also uh, we're gonna talk about this sort of things in the nineties. So we had the oil spill occur, so that was a big deal. Um but then I also remember the nineties, um at some point you uh transitioned a lot to um to Palmer or to Lander, sorry, and then Don Ford became director, and we uh, were like trying different things all the time. Like for instance, dog mushing. We tried dog mushing for a while, and in winter, which didn't really ever take off. Um, uh, now, um, let's talk about a little bit about um, the '90s and, and and into the O's, um, and I want to uh, maybe focus a little bit on land management and sort of not politics, but uh, you mentioned some research. Um, so what, I guess the question is, what influence do you think Knowles had on the state of Alaska? Um, I think there, the influence went both ways. There were certainly um, a lot of ways that Alaska influenced the school and then vice versa. And a big part of the 
influence was through partners that we worked with in Alaska, but also through individuals, including many individuals who came to Alaska with Knowles, but then went and worked elsewhere and became um, key people in the community. I think you, many folks don't even know how many Knowles graduates and former Knowles staff are around in Alaska and they make up land management people, they make up college professors like yourself, high school teachers, contractors, medical people, and sinks. The, um, I hear her on the radio all the time and with COVID information. She's the head of the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services, and she kind of got her start in Alaska with Knowles. And so there are so many people like that that had influence. But in other ways, I think Knowles brought in some experience to Alaska in the 80s that Alaska didn't necessarily have. One funny moment was when I was involved in reviewing, and this is the 80s and the 90s, but this started a lot in the 80s, reviewing land management plans. And Gates of the Arctic uh, put together this land management plan and we were commenting on it and they wanted a maximum group size for people of um, six people. And so much of the rest of the plan, they just copied and pasted from other um, national parks in the lower 48. And there was, was one section that allowed for, um, I think it was somewhere in the range of 25 or 30 horses for a group size. Yeah. Now, just trying to get 25 or 30 horses in Kotzebue or somewhere is not possible. And millions are involved in moving things or something. But, um, you know, it is. it was a pointless thing in the land use plan that it was a cut and paste, not to mention that horses weigh a lot more and have two legs for every, um, uh, or twice as many legs as every, um, as every walking recreationalist when it comes to impact. So it was an opportunity to go through things and bring some of the experience from elsewhere and say, yeah, you can cut and paste some of this stuff, but it doesn't necessarily apply to Alaska. And you need to take the best of what's learned there and add the best of what Alaska is to put together what's gonna work here long-term. And all that was exciting stuff because there were a lot of, you know, a lot of young people involved in that. And, um, and so there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of discovering what our future would be for Alaska, for Knowles, Alaska, for the outdoor industry in Alaska. Yeah, we'd be remiss not to mention the influence Knowles has had on uh, leave no trace uh, practices and ethics. Um, we'll have a link to all that stuff on our Outdoor Explorer website, along with a lot of other information about Knowles. Let's um, finish up with you. We're going to put on Ashley Wise here to talk about what's going on now and in the future here in a, in a few minutes. Um, but John, let's talk about the 90s and the O's. Um, any significant events um, that occurred during that time did that um, influence the school or that are worth talking about or a good story to tell? Well, I think the most significant event was when I was leaving as Alaska director at the end of 88 and we, um, I mean, this was like just coming into oil spill time and a lot of big transitions coming on, but I um, made the decision to move to Wyoming with Knowles and we were looking to hire a director and yeah, we had, we had some good people, but um, late in the process, 
I mentioned to Jim Rats, the director of the school, that I really thought Don Ford should be the director. And I'd worked with Don down in Mexico. He'd been director down there, and I'd worked down there with Donna and Don Ford, um, the two of them, for many years. And I thought they did a great job, and they had uh, um, a mission focus in the school, and they understood what the school was about. And he got the position, and many people make a school or make anything, but Don was in that job for years. I, I mean, I think just shy of 20 years and did a great job of adding a lot of stability, adding a lot of structure. Um, the 80s were, you know, so entrepreneurial and the 70s. We were starting up so many things and, you know, doing so many new things. But then you needed someone to come in and organize it all. <laughs> and Don, added a lot of maturity, organization, and um, really um, made a lot of pushes on the organizational behavior side of the organization to um, bring us into a more modern era. And also made huge changes to the physical plant and expanding the space in Knowles, Alaska for the future and for a more sustainable future for the staff. Yeah, the, the facility, I think one thing Knowles has done an amazing job with is in, investing in facility and infrastructure um, and uh, that, that it's barely recognizable as a uh, <laughs> old dairy farm anymore. I mean, it's still there, it's still recognizable, but it's been just incredible to watch um, that facility grow and into a true educational facility um, over the years. Uh, one of the stories I remember is... Um, the what you I don't know what you call it now, but it was the director's house. Yeah, John, that's a great story. I think that was donated by maybe Wally Hickel or something like that. Is that am I remembering that right from Anchorage? Yeah, when they were putting and this is actually in eighties yet, but when they were um, expanding the roads, kind of a North Anchorage and the whole C Street interchange and everything, they had to move a bunch of houses out of there. And um, I, we knew these folks that were going to have to get rid of their house and talk to them. And somewhere in the conversation that came up of um, they donated to Knowles, Alaska, but we had to get it out there and we had like no money. And they, um, I got a donation from um, Joan Chaitia, who is very committed to Knowles, Alaska, former trustee of the school. And Joan was going to contribute the some of the money to um, fix the thing up and put a foundation under it when we got it out there, but we still didn't have enough money. So then the people who donated the house actually made a donation to pay to move it out, which was just incredible. And so we moved it out. We had to chop off the top in order to get it under power lines. And we didn't have enough money to put a real road in to get it to where we wanted it. So we decided to drive it across a hay field and then hopefully get it to the spot we wanted. But to get it there, um, it was going to just exist where it landed, basically. And the house movers were not keen on this. But we got a little bit of a dry spell so it wasn't too wet. And we drove it out of the place, looped around, and had, um, had a spot that we're aiming for, we got within about 20 feet of that spot 
and got stuck. And that's where the house sat. And with it, it was perfectly lined up to uh, where the office window, the, which was a living room, but then became the office, looked right out at Pioneer Peak and just had beautiful views looking out um, at the at the Chugach range. And um, that became the director's house then. That's a great uh, story to sort of end with your segment, John. It's just a, a whole idea of the growth of Knowles and the partnerships and the community support that has supported Knowles over the years. Yeah, my, I remember waking up one morning and seeing this house rolling across the field. I was sleeping out somewhere <laughs> in my sleeping bag and going, wow, that's different. Um, but um, that's great, John. Um, I think uh, this is Outdoor Explorer. I'm on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordot. We're talking about Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, and their 50 years in Alaska. I'm going to pivot a little bit now to sort of what's going on now with Knowles. Um, we have uh, Ashley Wise. What this Ashley is the program manager. Do I have that right? Um, at Knowles, That's Alaska. Right. Uh, so, uh, Ashley and, and John, you can keep chiming in if you'd like. Um, tell us where we're at now and maybe some more recent history and uh, where uh, the direction of the school is going to now. Oh, thanks, Paul. Yeah, I love hearing these stories. And a uh, side fact that John and I actually had our weddings at the Knowles Farm, or John Gans and myself got married at Knowles Farm. So, it's pretty amazing place and i'm actually been the caretaker for the last 10 years living in that director house and and enjoying the view from that moved house so it's awesome to hear these old stories but yeah where <laughs> Knowles is now uh it's unbelievable the the growth that you all were alluding to um pre-pandemic we were running uh, about 70 courses up at Knowles, alaska in the summer and had uh about 140 instructors coming from all over the world to, to work here. Um, and then post pandemic, things have definitely shifted. We didn't operate in 2020, but uh, we were excited to operate again this year. And, and we had about 53 courses and 120 instructors come up. So uh, we're feeling like that's really positive um, coming out of the Pandemic. That, that's and, an interesting uh, point, Ashley. And John, I don't know, maybe you yeah. can chime in on this too. What, what, how many students on a typical year, let's say on an average over the last, uh, you know, since the 90s and 80s and 90s, does Knowles run through um, its operations up here? Well, when in the 80s, when I left, we had about a little over 300 students a year. And they were the average course length was much longer in the 80s so it was it was significant size but the number of students has expanded significantly since then and ashley could give more on that and many of them on shorter courses too yeah so ashley you want to chime in on that yeah i think uh in 2019 we were over 700 students wow. in, in Knowles, alaska and uh this past season, we had um, just over 530, I think. So it dropped down, but yeah, quite a, quite a few students coming through. And yeah, what John's alluding to, the, the courses have really morphed from not just 30-day expeditions with 12 students, but we're, we get a lot more adult courses and adults don't necessarily have that kind of time. Um, so we've, we have some seven-day courses and some two-week courses uh, focused mostly to get adults out in the wilderness. And we really, are relying on our private services like the uh, Mike Meekin to make that happen because 
if you don't have time to get into the wilderness or you know walk on the ATV trails into the Talkeetnas, we're we're actually flying uh, courses in and and really getting into the heart of the Talkeetnas for a week or two weeks now. Ashley, have you noticed a change in um, Alaska and your tenure here is exactly that? I'm thinking like Whittier and the increase of use in Passage Canal. And is that influenced the school's use of charter boats and airplanes to sort of bump people out a little bit further? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, when I started uh, in the mid 2000s, we were starting to hear from other users of the sound, you know, how hard it was to have a large group at the in Passage Canal. And if, if a private group was coming in, we were starting to compete quite a bit with not just tourists, but other guide groups. So we, we have really leaned on uh, Lazy Otter Charter in, in Whittier to get our groups actually chartered out in the sound. And, and now um, with the barrier, possible Barry Arm landslide, we're actually chartering groups back into to Whittier. So we're um, quite a significant change from paddling in and out of Whittier. We're, we're literally chartering in and out of Whittier to get farther into Prince William Sound. What other, um... Uh, how else is this school changing and uh, sort of directions um, you're gone? I know that you all had a, um, a British Columbia or Yukon branch in Southeast. Are those still happening or what other changes are in the foot that maybe have been, you know, because of the pandemic or maybe the pandemic has accelerated changes? Yeah, I think it's a combination. Um, our, our white horse base in, in the, in the Yukon was closed last season, and that was primarily due to the pandemic. Uh, Southeast for us, we closed a few years ago out of Petersburg um, because we were operating just sea kayaking down there and and 30 day sea kayaking, uh, which were incredible wilderness courses, as you, as you know. Um, but essentially, there's been a, a push in the last few years to to make Knowles, Alaska, you know, kind of headquartered here, and we're still trying to to get farther afield into the Brooks Range and that kind of thing. But um, we're the second largest location at Knowles right now and and really trying to operate as, as much as we can between the Brooks Range and, and Prince William Sound. And and where in the Brooks Range do you operate? Well, the pre-pandemic, we were operating uh, on the no attack. That was a, a trip that to me was one of the most incredible wilderness experiences at Knowles, it was a 40 day expedition, uh, 10 days of hiking and then floating out the, the almost the entire no attack to Kotzebue and, and then doing a cultural experience at the end of, of that trip. Um, so the Brooks Range and the no attack are, are where we, we have been. We haven't been there post pandemic, but we're trying to get back into the Brooks Range. What, Ashley, what um, else is going on with Knowles? Um, I think about the influences of the technology in particular, uh, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, sort of the cultural sensitivities. How are those influencing Knowles um, and not only your staffing, but how you operate? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's an interesting time in the outdoor industry and there's a lot of change going on. And Knowles has been investing extensively to make our field faculty more diverse. And we also recognize that it's important to make our courses more accessible. So we've been offering qu quite a bit of scholarship money for a few years. And I'm excited to see where the school goes from here. That's great. Um, 
Uh, any um, insight into uh, that technology and how technology, and this could be to John also, over the years, um, you mentioned the old radios, John, <laughs> and I remember those single sidebands, you're never quite sure who you're talking to or whether they're going to hear you, to now we have all kinds of um, ways to communicate. How's that influenced Knowles? Yeah, the I can speak to how technology is now. Uh, it's just grown leaps and bounds. Obviously, we, we get a lot of participants calling saying, can I bring my own in-reach satellite communication? And, and uh, I, I appreciate where Knowles is now that we still hold that close, that we, we do bring satellite phones that work quite well in the field. And then the, the in-reach type of satellite communication and being able to text your bush pilot when they're coming in has just that's that's been a game changer for us. So we are starting to use more of that uh, kind of texting satellite communication, and that allows us to our instructors to communicate with our our evac phone by texting, and then we can also you know plan for rerations by just texting our pilot Mike Meekin and saying hey we're here, and it brings it sends him the you know the GPS location, and he can just respond in text versus getting a voicemail and and I you know I. Where is it going to go is, is probably the biggest challenge because every instructor brings their satellite communication, they're talking to their families. So I think we're kind of at the beginning of the next phase of where we are with Knowles and we're just starting to have that conversation of like almost reining it in. You know, if everyone starts to have their own satellite communication out there, it, it changes the feel of the wilderness expedition. John, you want to chime in on that from your perspective a little bit, technology and um just how it's changed over the years? Well, I think Ashley hit the nail on the head at the end in that um, some of these changes, they can be really wonderful and they're really a plus. And when they make a difference for safety, you absolutely want them. But um, you would, I would really hate to see the nature of the wilderness experience and being detached and disconnected um, change in a significant way. I hope Knowles always can be a place where students and staff aren't calling out all the time, where they're actually leaving behind what um, the, their other connections to the world, because that's what makes it special. And that's what makes this a really um, connected expedition in the field. And so I think it's something we're going to have to continue to um, battle with an address as we go into the future. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, um, yeah, the ability to disconnect, I think, will be actually become a valuable commodity. <laughs> it already has become a valuable commodity and, to be able to actually totally disconnect. Right. And Paul, we we hear a lot from our students that you know they're just so overwhelmed with their technology back home that being able to come out on a knolls expedition is just this excellent time to unplug and and so it's part of the the real benefit that they they didn't realize until they they returned like wow wasn't that amazing to be unplugged for 30 days yeah that really is incredible so i want to end we're getting toward the end of our hour here i can thank you both for joining us but i want to end with uh either or both of you um let's start with john uh, sort of a one memorable uh, experience that you have um, from a Knowles course um, that up here in Alaska? Well, there are so many. Um, I, 
You know, I think um, so many. Seeing wolverines up in the Arctic Refuge a couple of different times. Yeah. And um, having never seen wolverines before and watching with students and, um, you know, just it was a symbol of, of deep wilderness in so many ways. But I think that um, probably the area, if I isolate one area, is we got in on a Knowles course um, up on the um, head snows of the um, Columbia and the Harvard Glacier, an area where just no one went. And we did these Knowles routes that would traverse from like the Nelchina to the Valdez, and they were pretty common, but we took off from that and got into this um, area that just no one went in. And from everything we could figure out, we put up probably, um, oh, close to half a dozen first descents with students on that trip. And a lot of them weren't the big marquee uh, peaks, but they were just great wilderness peaks. And we would be on a night schedule, so we'd climb during the night and those views looking out with all the alp and glow um, on top of a summit with students that were where you could say to the students, you're the first people to ever be here. And to look at the Wrangles, to look at the Alaska Range, to look at right down in Prince William Sound and all across the vast expanse, um, those memories are just so precious. And the quality of that experience was so incredibly rare, and it just stays with you. Thanks, thanks, John. Uh, that uh, that that loses up our time. Again, I thank you both for uh, being with us today. Uh, we've had John Vans and a former president of Knowles and the former director of Knowles Alaska, and Ashley Wise, the program manager of Knowles Alaska. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul and John. Thanks, Great. Ashley. Thanks for listening, and to my guest John Vance, former Knowles President and Knowles Alaska Director, and Ashley Wise, current Knowles Alaska Operations Manager, for joining us. Also, thanks to our producer, Airport. This is your host, Paul Tordock, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.